a theme that comes up over and over again if you look at environmental protest throughout history is the way it often intersects with the fight for indigenous sovereignty and the way that makes the backlash to protest more severe. From Ocheti Chakwan people in the U.S. to the Wet'suwet'en in Canada, the Lenka people in Honduras, the Tuhoi in New Zealand, indigenous-led efforts to stop environmentally harmful projects often help drive wider movements for Native peoples' rights. And when the backlash comes, efforts to repress environmental activism end up targeting indigenous rights movements, too. This is Nick Estes. I am an assistant professor of American Indian Studies at the University of Minnesota, co-founder of Red Nation, and I'm also an enrolled member of the Lower Rural Sioux Tribe. Nick Estes was deeply involved in protests at the Standing Rock Sioux Indian Reservation against the Dakota Access Pipeline, which a lot of people pinpoint as a key starting point of the modern climate movement in the U.S. And it was a really big deal. Thousands of people from all over the world showed up in North Dakota to protest the pipeline and stand up for indigenous land and water rights. There were celebrities there too, politicians. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has cited it as the moment that sort of radicalized her in the climate fight. People camped out for months. They participated in multiple direct actions and the police response was intense. There was militarized gear and helicopters, attack dogs, private security forces from the pipeline company, and even counterinsurgency tactics that were being used to try to deter and suppress protest. The Standing Rock protests were also explicitly cited when politicians started to pass laws criminalizing protests in the years following it. It became a verb. People said they didn't want to get standing rocked. Despite its significance, Estes sees Standing Rock as more of a continuation of a centuries-long battle for indigenous sovereignty. This country not only you know, exported war, but had been sort of founded on uh, a longer war called the U.S. Indian Wars, the 19th century. Uh, I would argue that it continued very much into the 20th century and the manifestations of which are also very prevalent in the way that police agencies throughout the country track, surveil, and police indigenous-led movements. He also sees it as the culmination of a more recent fight to protect native land and water rights that had been going on for several years before the Standing Rock protests began in 2016. Back in the early 2010s, I had been getting involved in like local tribal politics and things that were happening on the reservations. There were other protests that were going on. The IRS threatened to seize land from the Crow Creek Sioux tribe. And it was in the middle of a winter. I remember uh, Brandon Sazu, who was the tribal chairman at the time. He later went to Standing Rock. You know, he was in a trailer <laughs> by himself in the middle of a snowstorm and we used to go and bring him coffee and he was on a trailer on that land that they were supposed to seize. Sazu camped out in that trailer to block the IRS from seizing the land it was on. And during those same years, there were various fights over tribal water rights too. There was always a question around the jurisdiction over the river, control of the river and water rights. 
especially for the Lakota and Dakota reservations on Minishoshe, the Missouri River. And there was a consciousness around it because the Army Corps of Engineers kind of abolished our jurisdiction and then asserted its own and then sort of has say over flowage and what kind of erosion prevention are put on the river. And it may seem like sort of a mundane kind of thing, but back in 2011, there was massive flooding in the Missouri River Basin and the Army Corps of Engineers sort of patted itself on the back and said, hey, we did a really good job managing the floods. And had it not been for these dams, we would have lost lives and there were no lives lost. But that's actually not true. There were at least half a dozen lives lost in my reservation because of infrastructure being damaged because of floods. So there were these long-standing issues between the tribes and the U.S. government over water rights. And then in 2011, the Keystone XL pipeline united indigenous opponents in the U.S. and Canada. You had tribes coming from, or First Nations coming from Canada and talking about the destruction of their homelands from a tar sands extraction that was happening in Alberta. And they signed a treaty to protect the sacred uh, down in the Hunkdawa country and on the Yankton Reservation, where they all committed, including uh, the Great Plains Tribal Chairman's Association, which our tribe is party to as well, to prevent tar sands transportation across our treaty territories. That's a pretty bold move. I mean, there's like very few things in Indian country that unite grassroots people and tribal chairmen's like that we can all kind of agree on. That fight was ultimately successful, but it went back and forth for a decade. Biden just finally canceled the permit for the Keystone XL pipeline in 2021. And of course, five years before that, Standing Rock began. Standing Rock is an interesting case because Standing Rock you know, historically has been united in, in the sense that it allies itself, the council allies itself with the grassroots people. And so they were, you know, inviting people in. We didn't just show up uninvited. There was a public invitation and there was a public sort of hosting of people in this particular space. And they found land that was belonging to the Corps of Engineers that, you know, we, we had never formally ceded to the Corps of Engineers. So when we look at Standing Rock in that in that context, just by asserting treaty authority, just by asserting our right to exist and to you know live by the laws that we determine for ourselves, not somebody from the outside, that becomes a criminal act. It's actually just like criminalizing the Ocheti Shakoi. It's trying to make being a water protector an illegal act. The intense push by the fossil fuel industry to criminalize protest in the wake of Standing Rock was very much in line with how the industry has dealt with indigenous protest in other countries. So much so that it was a topic of conversation around the fire at one of the Standing Rock protest camps. So in 2016, I visited Standing Rock during the height of the protests against the Dakota Access Pipeline. This is Lindsay Ofrias, an anthropologist and documentary filmmaker who's making a film about how laws are used to suppress protest. She traveled to Standing Rock with two land defenders and leaders of the Sequoia people in Ecuador, who had been fighting first Texaco and then Chevron over oil spilled and dumped throughout the Amazon there for decades. 
So two of those people, Humberto Piaguaje and Carmen Zambrano, I went with them to Santa Rock in 2016. Mm. Part of the idea was for coalition building and also trying to think about what is possible outside or beyond this whole vortex of the law that kind of sucks everything into it. And so something that I will always remember is that around the fire one evening where, you know, everybody would come and sit around the fire and share stories, Umberto and Carmen gave kind of like a warning about what they had gone through and, Mm, you know, that it was likely to come to pass once again now that this RICO precedent has been set. RICO, the Racketeer-Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act, was created to prosecute the mafia in the U.S. It's been used in civil cases, too, to go after white-collar crime and prosecute corporate corruption. But it's had some surprising usage in legal battles around climate change and protest as well. It was used against Umberto and Carmen and their co-plaintiffs in Ecuador to block them from collecting a settlement after they defeated Chevron in court. That case stemmed from a decades-long fight with first Texaco and then Chevron. It began all the way back in the 1960s when the American oil company Texaco brought the oil business deep into the Ecuadorian Amazon, disrupting centuries of indigenous culture and tradition. The indigenous peoples in the Amazon, the Warani, the the Kofan, other indigenous peoples, they lived in a pristine rainforest environment prior to the arrival of uh, of Texaco and and the oil boom in in, in Ecuador in the 1960s and, and early 1970s. This is Marcos Orellana, an international law expert, professor at American University, and the UN Special Rapporteur on Toxics and Human Rights. The extraction of oil by Texaco uh, and Petro-Ecuador was without regard to the protection of the environment. It was without regard to the rights of affected indigenous peoples. First operated by Texaco, as I mentioned, and then taken over by Petro-Ecuador, oil operations severely impacted indigenous peoples' traditional lands. The, the oil boom in Ecuador has imposed loss of life, health, territory, and culture. Indigenous peoples have not received reparation for the violation of their rights. When the Sequoia and Kofan tribes banded together with local farmers to sue Texaco, which later became Chevron, for the damage that had been caused in the Amazon, They won, and then the oil company immediately accused them of corruption and collusion and held up the settlement in a decades-long RICO case back in the United States. They have still not collected that settlement. It turns out Umberto and Carmen's warning was prescient. Some 20 years after their ordeal began, a similar thing happened to Standing Rock protesters. Energy Transfer Partners, the pipeline company, tried to use RICO against individual water protectors and nonprofits like Greenpeace. In August of 2017, a suit was filed by Energy Transfer, the company behind the Dakota Access Pipeline. And this was for $300 million for allegedly orchestrating the resistance at Standing Rock. Deepa Padmanabha is Deputy General Counsel for Greenpeace USA. 
Energy Transfer brought claims under the Federal Racketeer Influence and Corrupt Organizations Act, or RICO. Um, And as many know, RICO was a law that was created to go after the mafia for organized crime. And what made RICO even more dangerous was that it allowed for the recovery of treble damages. So we were suddenly looking at an almost $1 billion lawsuit. And Energy Transfer was alleging that our advocacy work to uplift Indigenous voices at Standing Rock constituted organized crime. But all the court cases and laws that were passed in the wake of Standing Rock could not stop the one thing that oil company executives and right-wing politicians seemed absolutely terrified of. Indigenous people and allies of all kinds rising up against them. The subversive nature of being a water protector isn't just because, you know, the Ochetti Shakoi was leading this, you know, resistance against a pipeline, but they were also creating a sort of universal identity that was grounded in indigenous values, but didn't necessarily mean it was just for indigenous people. Because anybody who walked through the gates of, you know, Ochetti Shalkoin camp or Sacred Stone camp became a water protector by default. Estes says this sort of resistance was prophesied a long time ago. The Black Snake prophecy comes from several sources, but one of them it has to do with the Minishoshe, the Missouri River. And there were ideas that what they call Unchegula or Untehi, which are like essentially water monsters, snakes, were kind of banished to the river and then also sort of promised their return. And they would come back as a black snake. And, you know, I don't think a lot of people really fully understood it. And what LaDonna Bravebolt Aller told me is that at one point people thought it was the interstates because they were using a lot of asphalt. Um, But then when the oil pipelines were being built, it was like, oh, yeah, this is like, in some ways, like dinosaur blood, (laughs) you know, so the prophecy, as it was told during these times, would actually unite people in a kind of historic resistance. And it would unite all people, not just the Ochetti Shakoi. So as Phyllis Young said, the Hunk Papa Oyate was, you know, the horn um, of the buffalo or the horn of the camp circle, the Ochetti Shakoi. And they would be sort of the vanguard of the nation, but also this movement. I think there is, you know, some truth to that. The connection of the pipeline fights to the fight for indigenous sovereignty really seemed to supercharge the industry's response, which makes sense if you look at how entwined the industry's history has been with colonialism. In his book, Anointed by Oil, historian Darren Dochuk at Notre Dame University chronicled how U.S. oil men dealt with indigenous nations, both in the U.S. and when they first started to look beyond the country's borders for oil. One key tactic was to connect fossil fuel extraction with religion. These missionaries are are pushing into the jungles of the Amazon. They are coming in direct contact with petroleum geologists, for instance, the Standard Oil Company, and they are going to collaborate. They are going to partner in terms of the flow of information. And the, the information is going to be about the environment. It's going to be about the ecology that they're encountering. It's also going to be anthropological. Both classes of explorers are going to be deeply invested in trying to understand the people that they are encountering in these regions, and all with hopes of trying to get information from them 
to be able to kind of plumb the earth in a profitable way. So it really accelerates in the 1920s and moving into the 1950s and the Cold War period, this pursuit of black gold is going to be all the more intensified against the backdrop of the Cold War and the fight with communism and the fear that Latin America might lose itself to the great secular communist threat of the Soviet Union. So oil and the pursuit of souls is going to become all the more important. Author, lawyer, and law professor Judith Kimmerling documented similar behavior in the Ecuadorian Amazon in the 1970s. One of the groups, the Baiwaeri, they had no contact with the outside world until 1970. And they were subjected to a program of forced contact because after Tesco discovered commercial quantities of oil in Lago Agrio, it the company knew that it would want to expand its operations into Warani territory and the Warani who lived in those areas uh, had no contact with the outside world. And so the company collaborated with U.S. missionaries and Ecuador's government to subject the Warani to a, to a forced contact. The missionaries would get into planes, Texaco's planes. They would fly over the forest. They would look for Warani houses. I've actually heard reports, too, that they threw dynamite out of the plains to try to scare the Warani away. And of course, the missionaries wanted the Waranis to come live with them in settlements because the Warani were nomadic, semi-nomadic people. Um, So the missionaries wanted them to live in permanent settlements with the missionaries and become Christian. Texaco just wanted them out of the areas where they wanted to operate. And, you know, the government of Ecuador wanted Texaco to be able to find more oil and extract more oil. What we've seen from Ecuador to Standing Rock, India to Saudi Arabia, Nigeria to British Columbia, is that when indigenous peoples fight back against the plundering of their land, the backlash is swift, often violent, and comes with a huge side of colonialist entitlement. Today, we're going to travel to the Brazilian Amazon, where the Uruwawao people are trying to defend the last of their territory from agribusiness and logging. The excellent team behind the National Geographic documentary, The Territory, have shared footage with us to help tell that story. That's coming up after this quick break. This is Drilled, the real free speech threat. I'm Amy Westervelt. Stay with us. Environmental justice is a talking point in every politician's toolkit. But do you ever wonder where it all began? On this week's Throughline, we're taking you back to 1978, where a fight against a toxic dump in North Carolina started the environmental justice movement. Join NPR's Climate Week and listen to Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. you're listening to this show, you are probably at least climate curious. And one thing that I get asked all the time is, okay, I understand that this is a big problem. We need to act now, but what can I do? The climate crisis can feel like such a huge, overwhelming problem, which is why this April, former U.S. Vice President Al Gore and The Climate Reality are holding a free training on what's happening with the climate and what we can personally do. 
And actually, I'm going to be part of that training. It all happens in New York City, April 12th through the 14th, and it's going to be big, really big. If you want to know what climate change means for your future, your career, your part of the country or the world, this training is for you. You'll get to hear straight from former U.S. Vice President Al Gore and a lineup of incredible thought leaders, scientists, experts, and more at the top of their fields. I'll be doing a training on climate disinformation as part of this. You'll come away with a real understanding of what's happening to the planet and the skills to make a difference. If you complete the training, you'll join the Climate Reality Leadership Corps, a community of nearly 50,000 change makers all over the world. To learn more and apply, visit climaterealityproject.org slash new dash York. That's climaterealityproject.org slash new dash York. I hope to see you there. In the heart of the Amazon, the Udawawa people have seen their community decline from thousands to just around 200 people. Those remaining descendants are trying to hold on to and protect the tribe's ancestral lands in the Amazon, which faces increasing threats from the country's large agricultural industry. The big agricultural companies know better than to go after indigenous rights directly. Instead, they pay small farmers to sneak into protected territory, slash and burn, and set up homesteads. Once they've made inroads, the big companies come in and take over, clearing large segments of the forest to either grow soybeans or graze cattle. The documentary The Territory documents the fight between farmers and the tribe, particularly under former Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro, who made undermining the rights of indigenous people part of his platform. This is Bitate, a young Urawawa leader. He says non-Indigenous people always say the same thing, that Indigenous people have too much land and that we should clear the trees and raise cattle. But I don't agree, he says. The forest and the rivers are our home. They support us. Alternating between footage of the Udawawao and some of the settlers and farmers trying to invade their land, the film highlights themes we see turning up in every environmental fight. After we hear from Bitate, we meet Sergio, a farmer who talks about the forest as prime farmland that shouldn't just go to waste. The indigenous people aren't doing anything with the land, Sergio says. They're not planting, they're not producing. All they do is live there. Robert Miller, a citizen of the Eastern Shawnee tribe and a professor of Indian law at Arizona State University, says the tension between settlers and indigenous people over living in relationship with the land versus extracting from it has been going on since colonization began. 
The doctrine of discovery is one of the original international law doctrines that was developed in the 1400s to control the actions of European Christian nations. As Europeans began to sail outside the site of land, they began to be interested in acquiring empires in Africa and then into the Americas and into Asia. They very rarely found lands that were truly vacant. They were claiming the lands of indigenous peoples in Africa, in the Americas, and in Asia. So it wasn't finders, keepers, losers, weeper, or here's a lost piece of property. I pick it up. I look around. There's nobody to claim it. So it's mine. No, they were mostly claiming settled lands where cultures and nations had lived for hundreds, if not thousands of years. The justification was Christianity and civilization, and it's hard to even understand what that means. But the civilization of Europe was somehow superior to that of every other indigenous peoples around the world. I mean, today it's ludicrous to even say that. But those were the justifications that God wanted European Christians to own these lands and that the Christian God intended that. And somehow Christian Europeans were superior to everyone around the world. As Europeans began colonizing various places, philosophers like John Locke also justified the taking of indigenous land by describing it as empty land. According to Locke, if land was not being farmed or used in some other way, it was empty. Terra nullius is a Latin phrase meaning empty land. That's exactly what John Locke was writing about. That's exactly what most Europeans assumed. They assumed the lands around the world was vacant. They could come here and make it their own by applying their labor to it. In the territory, we watch as the Udawawal make use of the land, too. They fish, they bathe in the river, they drink the water. They weave roofs and baskets out of palm fronds. But the forest remains intact. When settlers and farmers come in, they use chainsaws to chop down trees and light fire to large areas of land to clear it. It's really striking to see the visual contrast between these two opposing views of humanity's relationship with nature. When farmers illegally farm in protected indigenous regions, they claim it's because they are poor and need the land. But Nadinia, a local environmentalist who fights alongside the Udawawao and has for decades, says the farmer's stories are not entirely truthful. Para grilar a terra se, se financia essas pessoas e depois os grandes vêm e But they are often financed by Brazil's major agribusiness landowners. So once the small farmers complete the first invasion into the forest, these large landowners will take over and clear the rest. As invasions increase and the indigenous affairs agency starts telling the news that nothing is happening, that the invasions are being made up by the indigenous people, the tribe's new young leader, Bitate, comes up with a novel idea. Perhaps cameras are more powerful than arrows or machetes. Pulling together a tribal patrol, he sets out into the forest using drones to track invasions and then documents all the evidence. The patrol finds and arrests some 30 people that they call invaders. 
Pitate tells them, we don't want to hurt you, but you can't be here. Everyone knows this is indigenous territory. The media picks up the story. And the local group of farmers that had been trying to take over part of the territory loses its political support. They disband. Don't worry, I've left plenty of twists and turns out here because I think everyone should see this film. This part of the documentary chronicles a huge win, which you don't always get in these sorts of stories. Despite that, the Urewawa's future still feels pretty precarious. Bolsonaro is out of office now, but Bolsonarismo is going strong. At one point in the film, a settler references the Bible and his faith that this land is his. When his homestead is found and burned down by Bitate's patrol, he vows to keep rebuilding it. Still, the country's new president does seem committed to supporting indigenous rights and stopping deforestation. And so far, the numbers are promising. In President Lula da Silva's first six months in office, deforestation dropped by more than a third. Will it be enough? We'll have to watch and see. Drilled is an original Critical Frequency production. Our senior editor for this series is Aline Brown. Senior producer and sound designer is Martin Zaltz-Ostwick, who also composed much of the music in this episode. Additional music composed by Peter Duff, who mixed and mastered the episode. Fact-checking by Wudan Yan. Legal review by James Wheaton. The show is reported and written by me, Amy Westervelt. Our artwork is by Matt Fleming. Our theme song is Bird in the Hand by Four Known. The show was created by Amy Westervelt. You can find additional stories and reporting materials related to this episode and others in this series on our website at drilled.media. You can also sign up for our newsletter there. If you'd like to support the show, you can give us a rating or review wherever you listen to podcasts. It really helps us find new listeners. Share links to our stories or upgrade to a paid newsletter or podcast subscription for access to ad-free, early release episodes and bonus content. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next week.